my guess is you've already guessed through our special ministries video that we showed, as well as through the songs that we're singing at all of our campuses today, uh, that we're emphasizing, obviously, this idea of God's love, that we're in a series here at our church out of the book of Philemon talking about uh, this idea of equality and reconciliation founded upon the love of God. And we're gonna do something a little bit different today. We're gonna take what I'm gonna call an excursus in our, in our Philemon study, just a little bit of a different trail, but going up the same mountain. And we're gonna take a look at something today that's gonna set up our final look at Philemon next weekend. There were three weekends devoted to this short book, Philemon, and we did two of them already. We were gonna do the third one today, but it hit me this week that, uh, that we needed to do some prep work, if you will, for what the last look at Philemon is about, because it's about this idea of reconciliation and release. You're gonna see that next week. But in order to fully understand the ask that Paul gives to Philemon in light of Onesimus to reconcile and release, um, I felt we needed to understand that this whole idea of reconciliation with Jesus is all about and how it affects our human-based reconciliation. And so that's the excursus today. I think you're gonna be uh, very, very pleased with it and pleased with where we're going. I think you're gonna be deeply, deeply encouraged, maybe even changed in your spirit as we focus on what we're gonna focus on today. Now, for some of you that are, that are <coughs> excuse me, super high control people and are saying, oh no, this is gonna throw off the whole year, you had it all set, you know, what have you, you can breathe deeply because what I do when I plan the year out is I build in a few weekends for exactly like this. So yes, it throws us off, but, but I've already built in a weekend that we can catch up on uh, coming up here in a month or two that will make it so that we're still on track. So as the Bible says, everything with decency and order, amen? So we're still, they, somebody said amen, uh, you need therapy. So anyways, uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's my favorite verse of my wife. I just say, everything with decency and order, let's do the dishes, and she hates me. So all right, why don't you guys bow with me and let's pray. Father, God, I thank you for the church, the gathered church here and at Cactus Northridge Chapel and certainly online. And God, even in these tenuous and difficult times that we're going through right now, I, I thank you that we can gather either digitally or in person and worship you and, and focus on certain aspects of your church like we did today with special ministries. And Lord, even as we're going to see with this idea of reconciliation with you and how it can and should bleed over with each other. So God, I pray that as we unpack that today, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see that which you have already revealed in your word. And Lord, may we respond with obedience and faithfulness and trust. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So I wanna ask you, if, if you and I were having a cup of coffee and I asked you to share with me what the one thing is in life that drives you. That, that what is the one thing that kind of gets you out of bed and prods you on through the day and gets you going, what would you say it is? Now, Christians are wily. What you would probably try to say is, well, it's not just one thing. I got a bunch of things and you'd list it, but, but let's discipline ourselves. If, if we had to say, what is it that drives you the most? What makes the top of the list that gets you out of bed and gets you going each day, what would it be? This is a motivational question. 
If I don't miss my guess, some of you, if you felt safe and honest with me, would list one of the numerous cultural motivations that are out there today as that which is motivating you the most right now. In fact, you might say, hey, I'm in the prime of my life, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make a living, and so this idea of money and work and vocation is that which gets me out of bed each day. I get out of bed and I say, I gotta make money, I gotta go to work, and, and, and your life is consumed with that right now. It's money that drives you the most in your life. That would be an honest answer, and certainly where so many Americans are. Others of you might say, well, yeah, the money thing's there, but, but you know, my business is all about people and my life is all about people, so I'll land on people. People is what drives me the most. I, I love to serve, I, I love to give my time and volunteer hours, and my, again, my job's all about people, and, it, and, and it's this humanitarian moment uh, or movement of helping people in their lives that drives me in my life. So you have money, you got, you got people. And then there might be some of you that would say, because this is really popular today, no, it, it, it's kind of a mix of those two. It's influence that gets me out of bed each day. You know, political influence, societal influence, being able to make a difference, make a dent for the good in this world. And, and it's all about influencing, nudging things in one direction or another. So you have these cultural motivations that, that are driving us. Again, money, people, influence. And then if I don't miss my guess, some of you would join in this conversation and answering the question, what drives you the most? What prods you on the most in life? And you say, well, those are awfully unspiritual things, aren't they, Jamie, that drives me? I mean, I'm much more heavenly motivated and, and spiritually motivated. And then you start listing things like this. You'd say, well, the Bible says that someday when we die, we're gonna go to heaven and we're gonna be rewarded for things that we did here on earth. So it's, it's rewards and, and pleasing God for all of eternity that drives me the most. That I wanna get one of those well done, good and faithful servants when I die and that's what gets me out of bed each day. It, it's rewards that drives me. And then others, you might say, well, yeah, I do believe the rewards thing. I like that. But you know, you've talked, Jamie, a lot about the mission of the church and how lost people matter to God and evangelism and missions and letting those who haven't heard know about that. And, and I buy into that. That's what drives me the most. Let's get the word out. It's the mission of the church that drives me. And then again, in the vein of being painstakingly honest, some of you would say, hey, we've forgotten something here. What about the fear of God? I mean, we're all about love and grace nowadays. And you know, I was raised with a healthy dose of fear. Fear of God, fear of hell, fear of judgment. And that leads to discipline and doing the right things. It's, it's kind of fear that motivates me in my life. And that's not always a bad thing, Jamie. And I would tend to agree with you on that. I mean, think about it, folks. There are so many things in answer to my simple question as to what gets you out of bed and drives you, there's a variety of motivational forces that can prod us on throughout the day. Some of them obviously better than others, but all of them, watch this, could be defended from the Bible. They truly could. I mean, even the idea of money. It's written in Thessalonians, if you don't work, you don't eat. <laughs> so there you go. I mean, there's a motivation to you know, prepare, have, a, have a life and a livelihood based on hard work and, and money and eating. And, and so this idea that, that there are a variety of motivational forces is confirmed even in the Bible. And yet here's where I'm going with this today. And some of you have seen this coming over the last few minutes. And that is that out of all the things that power up our lives today, from money to people to influence, to rewards, to the mission of the church, to fear, 
along comes the Bible and it tells us that none of these things should be our primary or number one drive in life. That's right. It tells us that because of something that happened in history 2,000 years ago, that none of these things, even though they do become the number one thing at times in our lives, should not be the number one things, that they should all be moved to at least second place status. It tells us something else should take first place. Now, to show you this, I wanna take a look at a passage today that I hinted to earlier that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. I gotta tell you, the book of 2 Corinthians has become my new favorite book in the Bible. I've been spending a lot of time in it. And the reason is, is because in this letter, Paul just lays things out as it is. I mean, he is more personal and self-revealing in his authenticity in 2 Corinthians than any of his other 12 letters that made it into the New Testament. And the church in Corinth was a mess. They were spiritually connected to Jesus, but they had the wrong focus. They are what I called pragmatic hedonists, the Christians in Corinth were. In other words, they wanted that next jolt of pleasure. They wanted that next experience with God or in this world, and they were willing to do anything to get it, and yet they really weren't focused on the right things when it came to their faith in Jesus. And in this section we're gonna look at right now in chapter five, Paul is sharing very honestly with this erring church, and by extension with you and me, who might struggle with our own motivations, what should be the primary drive in our lives? What experience we should be seeking after above all else? And so the first thing I want you to notice with me as we turn to this passage, and this is what it's all about, is that Paul tells them, and by extension us, that God's personal love for you must be that which drives you the most. I've chosen my words very carefully here, even before we turn to the text so that we don't miss it. Here's what he's gonna tell us. God's personal love for you, not his love for the world, not his love for everybody else, though that's in play, but his personal love for you, personalize it, must be that which drives you the most and gets you out of bed each day. So before any and all of the other motivations that we just walked through, whether it be cultural ones like money, people, or influence, or even spiritual ones like rewards, church, or fear, God's personal love for you and me must be that which permeates our core and goes deeper than anything else into our being. It must be our primary drive in life. And I'm gonna give you some examples in a second here as to how you know whether it's the primary drive or not. But first, uh, let's notice how Paul declares this to us in our passage. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. He says this, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one, meaning Jesus, died for all, and therefore all died. I put it there in yellow so you would not miss this. For the love of Christ controls us. Notice not our love for him, though we should have that, but even before that, the Bible says that his love for us, for you, is what should drive you and me the most. 
I told you earlier, I've been spending a lot of time in this, in this book here. I'll probably do a series on it within the next year. It's that great of a book. I, and I focused a while back here on that word control, because that seems to be the operative word here, right? Like the love of Christ controls us. And I did a deep dive into what that word means. That word in the Greek literally means to hold together, pictures, to hold together or to compress. In other words, it's a motivational term, not a directional term. It's a term that's more concerned that there's something inside your soul that needs to be held together, a driving force that then moves you on once you hold it together and have the right focus. That's why it's translated control here. I actually think the New International Version has a better translation when it says this, this. it says, for the love of Christ compels us. It moves us forward, it prods us on. That's exactly what Paul is saying. What he's saying in a very straightforward way here is that the fuel that we must run on, the batteries that must recharge us, the food that needs to feed our soul, the power base from which we need to function is nothing more and nothing less than Christ's love, God's love, for you and me on a personal level. So I told you earlier, I was gonna, I'm gonna give you some examples of what this is like. What this means is that anytime you and I make a decision, whether it be financial or with our job or with our family or even as a church, we need to consider God's personal love as a driving motivational force in the decisions that we make. It means that when we're responding to a hurt from somebody around us, we all get that in our lives, that God's love needs to be the compass to tell us what to do in response to that hurt. It means that when we're responding to difficult situations going on in the culture around us, whether they be political ones or societal ones, or as we've been talking about, even racial ones, God's love is to be our barometer. God's love is what tells us, when, when it tells us whether we should be gently sunny or prophetically stormy or however to respond, but it's his love that's to motivate us in light of even the difficult situations around us. Don't miss this, gang. It doesn't matter what the situation is, work, family, church, friendship, civic involvement, it's the love of Christ that's to control you and me as followers of Jesus. It's to be our primary drive. And I wanna say very quickly, because again, it gets kind of tricky, but it's really not that complicated. We're not suggesting that any of the other motivations are bad or wrong. Please hear that. We're not suggesting that to be motivated by money or even influence or power in your life is bad. It's just that that never is to take first place residence in your soul. Even great theological things like, like rewards or the mission of the church or a healthy fear of God, all good things. They are never to be the primary drive. The Bible's really clear on that. Only the love of God for you in Christ should be that, which is the primary thing that gets us up and going each day. As Jeremiah experienced in Lamentations chapter three, when he's looking at the desolation of Israel, he, he, he says, but this hope I have, your mercies are new every morning. So even when things are at their worst, I know that tomorrow when I wake up and see the sun, that God's mercy and love is greeting me. And that got Jeremiah going even in the most difficult times. 
You see, any other motivation, and boy, Christians sure have them, any other motivation that you have as leading the way in your soul, and you will be spiritually and relationally anemic in your life. And so could it be that this is why so many Christians are dissatisfied? That so many Christians say on a regular basis to me, hey, I'm just, you know, I just feel kind of discontent and I'm not very happy and I'm not very joyful and what have you and, and, and I'm just mad at all the stuff going on around me and I go, well, what's riding point in your soul? Because if it's all these other things, these other motivations, which aren't bad, but if those are the things leading the way, then I get it. You're gonna be an angry, frustrated, joyless Christian. And we got a lot of you out there already. And so my plea is to say, stop being a Christian who's in the ring but on the ropes. Be a Christian who's in the fight, the fight of love, the love of God that controls us. You know, this year, I, I kind of said this to you guys a few weeks ago, this year I uh, am celebrating 40 years of following Jesus. Man, I'm getting old, 40 years of following Jesus. I accepted Jesus when I was 17 years old, March 11th, 1981, and I'll be celebrating my spiritual birthday here in, 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 in a couple months. And, and as I did an audit this week, just sitting in my home office of, you know, the seasons I've gone through as a Christian the last 40 years, it's uncanny how I would have been driven at times by all those other things that we mentioned earlier, that not the love of God has always been driving me. Can you own that today? I thought back to when I first got saved in 1981, and I've told you guys this before, but I got saved out of you know, a really sinful background. I was just doing a lot of stuff I knew I shouldn't do, and I was very, very far from God and all that stuff, and I had a radical conversion to Jesus. And the first couple of years of my, my faith in Jesus, it was very fear-based. I was afraid of falling back into sin. I was afraid of hell. You know, I, I, now I believe hell was a reality. I was, I, I was afraid of you know, the world and all that stuff. And man, I was just this rigid, disciplined, fear-based Christian. And that lasted about two years. And again, it wasn't bad. I, I needed to go through that season, I believe. Because I came out of such a horrendous background that I needed to, 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 to finally you know, not go back into that. And that fear kept me from doing that. It wasn't a terrible season God brought me through. It kept me on the straight and narrow. But then about two years into my faith, I went into about another eight to 10 year season. And, and many of you have been there. Where as a young man, it was all about pleasing God and pleasing others. That's when I sensed a call to the ministry and I wanted you know, to go into church work and make a real difference. And, and, and I realized that to do that, I couldn't tick off people like I do today. I just, I just couldn't do that. And, and so I was in this people-pleasing mode through college and seminary and in my first church, and I, and, and I wanted to make sure everybody was happy and glad and that they'd follow me, and I certainly wanted to do that with God and all that, and I was in this, this hyper-people-pleasing mode for about a decade. And then somewhere around the mid-90s, God, in his amazing grace, clobbered me with a conviction that all that was not the emphasis, that the emphasis was his love. Me and my fellow pastors in Detroit all went through the same movement, if you will, of, in our souls, where, where we discovered what I'm sharing with you today here, and that's that though those other motivations are not wrong, they're actually good and fine in their place, that it's the love of God that needs to control us the most. But here, here's the point, and I'll get to this more in a minute here. I, I'm not sure I really believe that. See, I would have given theological lip service to the fact that, yeah, 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 like some of you are doing right now, yeah, 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 the love of God, what's next? But you see, that was my mindset. My mindset was, well, yeah, I know God loves me. Like we teach our first graders that one. There's gotta be more to it than that. 
And if somebody said to me, no, 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 just park in front of that, Jamie, let it settle in. Let that permeate your soul. I was, I, I was defensive. I, I, I saw that as mushy and weak, and, and I thought, I'm a man. I don't want to do that. And somewhere in the mid-90s, it clicked for me. I really don't know what it feels like to be unconditionally and massively loved by God. And hence, I wasn't experiencing that in my marriage. <laughs> I wasn't experiencing that in my relationships. <laughs> One therapist put it to me like this. Yes, I was in therapy. I, I'm not anymore, though I should be. But anyways, I was back in therapy back then. And one therapist put it like this to me. This was a moment in time. He said, Jamie, you're like this to everybody around you. You're so good at saying, come closer, come closer. Let's join a small group. Let's serve together. You know, We're one church. And at the same time, you got your other hand out just keeping everybody at bay. And then he got me. He said, because you're that way with God. And you really don't believe that he loves you and that his love can break through every barrier that you erect. And it was a moment in time for me to realize and commit my life 25 years ago now to pursuing the love of God above all else. Paul's not kidding, gang. The love of Christ controls us, or at least it should. This is the primary drive that God has reserved for you. Now, if I don't miss my guess, many, maybe even most of you are sitting there right now at home or at one of our other campuses or here, and you're thinking, man, that just sounds too good to be true. I mean, I'm interested, but those other motivations are just so strong and they ride, you know, point in my soul way too often. And so you're asking the question, well, how do you get this love into you, Jamie? I mean, what did you do 25 years ago, you know, to, to, to start to get more in touch with the love of God? Because it, it seems simple, but rather complex. And this brings us to the second thing that Paul shares with us in this passage here that's gonna set us up really powerfully for next week as we finish Philemon, and, and, and it's this. And that is that the cross of Jesus, that's really important, the cross of Jesus, reveals God's love most clearly. So reverse this. If you want to know his love for you on a much more intimate, personal level, even if you're somebody who already believes in Jesus, it's his cross where this love is found. Let me show you what I mean. I wanna read for you, I'm gonna string together some passages out of Corinthians here in chapter five that go on to talk about the love of God in Christ, and you're gonna see that it all comes down to this idea of his death and this idea of reconciliation. Let me show you what I mean. Let's read this together. Just follow along as I read it. We'll start off with what we already know. For the love of Christ controls us. We've seen that. That's our motivational force. Having concluded this, that one died, that means Jesus, therefore all died. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and his death and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them. And he has committed to us, believers, the word of reconciliation. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Now, I've taught you guys before, and this is a great way to read the Bible, that if the Bible emphasizes something repeatedly within a very short time frame, it's probably something you need to dial into. Give me a head nod that y'all understand that. You do it with everybody else around you. If you have kids and they're doing something you don't want, you say to them eight times in a row, don't do that. Or if you're married and you don't have kids yet and you, you want your spouse to get something, you mention it eight times in a row. We do this, this all the time in our lives. Guess what? God does the same to you. And so notice with me here that within two verses, four times, in two verses, four times, he mentions this idea of reconciliation. I put it in yellow so you wouldn't miss it. He says, now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. So by this time, you gotta be going, what in the world does that mean? This word reconciliation literally means, you're gonna like this, to restore a relationship that has, be, has been torn down through enmity. It's restoring a relationship that's been torn down through enmity or friction. All of you know what that's like, right? Like you have a good friend or maybe in your marriage or in your family of origin or whatever, and you love that person at one time, but then something happened. Mainly they did something, right? Something happened and that relationship got torn apart and you're sick about it. You've tried to make it right and you can't seem to do it because it takes two to tango. And what you would hope for someday is this, that the relationship is torn apart, but reconciliation means the two parties come together and now there's love and harmony and forgiveness and grace. Once again, that's reconciliation. Now, when applied in the setting here in 2 Corinthians 5, that of God and us, this word reconciliation is jam-packed full of meaning and depth. Because here's the backdrop of what it assumes. It assumes that God loves you. It assumes he made you in his image, Genesis chapter one, that he called your creation very good. Psalm 139, we allowed our, our special ministry kids to read it earlier, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The assumption is God loves you and longs to be in relationship with you. But it also assumes that there's enmity between you and God. That's Genesis chapter three and the rest of the Bible. All of you know it too well. As Isaiah said, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way. And so what the Bible says is all of humanity has essentially fallen and fallen into sin. God hates sin, and that's why you feel the separation from him. The Bible has a very clear explanation as to why society is so messed up, because it's run by a bunch of sinners, amen? And so when society's run by sinners or even churches or whatever, and they haven't repented of their sin, they haven't reconciled with God, it's gonna remain a mess. The Bible's pretty clear on that. And so there's this, this problem with God. We are separated from him. And what Paul is telling us here, don't miss this, is that reconciliation, this bringing of God and his creation together is made available and possible only through the death of Jesus. It's only in the cross that we most clearly see the love of God that could reconcile us to him. Look again at verse 21. This is rich. It says, he, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin. Hang on to that. We're gonna to get to that in a second. Who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf 
that we might become the righteousness of God, forgiven and now reconciled with him. Now, here's a key question you need to think of, because a lot of Christians think they know this stuff and they don't. When it says that Jesus knew no sin, that obviously refers to his perfection, he never sinned, but that he then became sin for us. Let me ask you, where and when did Jesus become sin for you and me? He lived 33 years on this earth. We know that for a fact. That's written in history. Did he become sin for us at his birth, yes or no? Let me give you a hint. No, he didn't become sin for you at his birth. Did he become sin for us when he grew up and started his teaching ministry in northern Galilee along the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee with the Sermon on the Mount? Is that when he became sin for us? I'll give you a hint. No. Did he become sin for us when he started his healing ministry? He started healing people and miracles and showing he's really from God. Is that when he became sin for us? No. Did he become sin for us during his trial and, his, and, and, and when he was convicted of, of going against the Jewish religion and sentenced to death? Is that when he became sin for us? No. Did he become sin for us when he rose from the dead on the third day, that glorious morning on Easter? Is that when he became sin for us? No. Did he become sin for us when he was on that cross, dying a criminal's death as the son of God, God come in the flesh? Is that when he became sin for us? Yes or no? Yes. And that's the apex. It's the crux of all of history. Because here's what the Bible makes clear. At that moment, someone who knew no sin, the only perfect human being that ever lived, Jesus, became sin for us. In other words, theologians have a fancy phrase for this. They call it substitutionary atonement. That Jesus took your sin. Think about that, your sin. He knew that you were gonna live 2,000 years later here and wherever you, are, wherever you live. He knew you were gonna be here. And he took all of your sin all of it, Alan, past, present, and future. Everything he's done, everything he's currently doing, and all the things you will do before you die. He knows about all of it. And he took all your sin and placed it on Jesus. He who knew sin became sin for us. And he atoned for it. The death that you should have died because of your sin, that separation, that enmity, Jesus took upon himself. And here's what you need to know. He only did that for one reason. You ready for this? Because he loves you. <laughs> he didn't do it out of obligation. He didn't do it out of duty. He didn't even do it, as some Christians seem to suggest, out of exasperation, right? You know, the way some Christians talk, well, he loves us, and I guess he had to do it, you know, and he reluctantly went to the cross. That's not what it's painted by the That's not what the Bible says. Somebody once said, when you get too excited, your IQ drops by 30. That happens to me quite often. <laughs> that, that came out of therapy too. And as, uh, the Bible makes it really clear that it's his love for you that sent him to that cross. And ergo, it makes sense that only in the cross is his love most clearly seen. There's a strain of theology today, I'm not gonna bore you with it, I don't have to get onto this, but there's a liberal strain of theology today that's actually attacking this idea that love sent Jesus to the cross. And they actually argue based on where our culture is right now, some Christian churches do, that, that, that this idea that God the Father sent Jesus the Son to the cross is a form of parental abuse. And, and that only a mean father 
who wants to abuse his son would send him to die. And hence they reject this idea that it was love that sent Jesus to die for you. I would suggest they're not thinking deep enough. Jesus made it really clear when he said it this way in John 15, he said, greater love has no one than to give up your life for your friend. You got my buddy Ed here in the second row. Ed's got four children, a bunch of grandchildren. I can promise you that if one of them needed an organ <laughs> and said the only hope was for Ed to give him that organ, but there's a chance Ed you die, I know how much you love your family, you'd give him that organ. And that happens in real life. God knew that the only way for sin to be forgiven, this is rooted in the Old Testament, is for life to be given for the life that sin takes away. It's blood for sin, that's what atones. So he had his eternal son become a human being, a man, live a sinless, perfect life as the only one who ever could. And then in love, he sent him to the cross for you so that you might be forgiven of all of your sin. Where is God's love most clearly seen? Don't ever forget this. It's at the cross. And again, I know how some people think, I've been, again, 40 years, I've been talking to people about this stuff. Even some Christians say, well, it just sounds too good to be true. Like, there's just no way God could forgive me of all of my sin, especially the ones I haven't even done yet. Like, does he, how could he ever love me that much? I mean, that just sounds, so I, I got accused of this in the early days. You're just an idealist, Jamie. Don't you love that word? You're just an idealist. I go, well, if an idealist means that I believe the love of God can be so rugged and, and rich that it could actually blow through every one of your sins and mine, then call me an idealist. Because that's what the Bible says. And folks, in the last 40 years, it's been tested in more ways than you could ever imagine. I've talked with people who have lived the most heinous lifestyles, people who have done tremendously terrible things that make your sins look very mild, or maybe you're one of those. And I've seen them embrace the love of God in Christ found at the foot of the cross, and they would weep with the love that overwhelmed them and could forgive even their sin. And by the way, it's all throughout the Bible. Saul, who had become Paul the Apostle, was a murderer, sat over the stoning of Stephen, hated all Christians, like some of you did at one point. Matthew was a ruthless tax collector, only about money. Peter was the great denier, didn't have the strength even to follow Jesus through his time of crisis. I mean, the Bible is filled with men and women who had tremendous moral failure. Again, they make us look like Billy Graham and Mother Teresa. And they would testify that God's love is so rugged, it can forgive you of anything that you have done. There's hope for everybody. So add up where we've come from today, gang. It's his personal, unquenchable love for you that needs to drive you. Why? Because only his love found at the cross can blow through all of our sin and bring us to God. And then finally, so we have just a few minutes left, and this will set us up for next week. Notice what happens then when this finally becomes embedded in our souls, when we believe and have faith that this is the Jesus who came for us. The Bible then tells us you can now live for him and a life of reconciliation, of reconciliation with God and now helping others be reconciled to God and each other as well. Look at how the Bible would state this. I love this. It says in our passage, and he, Jesus, died for all, watch this, that they who now live 
should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So God sees even if you're a Christian who's beat up on the ropes, man, you're at least in the ring. And that God now has placed his spirit in you and you're a new creation and you can choose to live for him and stop being motivated by all those second place things in culture right now. Things like money and the pursuit of power and influence and even spiritual things like fear and people pleasing. I mean, all that stuff is fine in its place, but shut it off and allow the love of God to permeate your life so that you can live for him and nothing more. And then when that happens, Look at this last passage today. It says, therefore, we now recognize no man according to the flesh. Because, man, we're rooted in the love of God. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now know him thus no longer. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses and sins against them. Here it is. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Jesus. And so God, we're entreating through us now, I love this. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. <laughs> One final question that will bring it all home. If the Corinthians were already reconciled to God, which they were because he calls them saints in chapter one, why does he end this passage telling them and begging them to be reconciled to God? What do you think the answer is to that? You see, I think what Paul's doing there is he's basically saying, you're in the ring, but you're on the ropes. <laughs> you're in the ring because, you know, you've accepted Jesus and you are reconciled. In fact, a few chapters earlier, he's gonna say, you know, you guys are like people that, you know, when you get to heaven are barely gonna escape the flames. You're gonna get in, but, you know, it's gonna be a tough go. That's the church in Corinth. And so he's saying here that even though you're technically Reconciled, even though you believe the right things and you go to church and you're in a small group and you serve and you tie 10% on the gross and all these things, he's saying you need to go deeper and you need to truly get in touch with that reconciliation so that you can be one who helps others reconcile to God and even to each other. I think that's what he's saying. And what a word for today. So I said to you next week, we're gonna talk about how Paul says to Philemon, man, you need to be reconciled to Onesimus. You need to set that dude free. And by the way, you need to eradicate this awful thing called slavery and you need to start getting equality as the name of the game. And knowing me, I'm probably gonna apply that to our lives today. You ready for that? And knowing you, you're gonna send me emails telling me how much you disagree with me. <laughs> and if you're right biblically, then I'll receive that. But here's the problem, gang, and that is that many of us, the root problem is not do we agree with equality or not, it's not do we wanna see people reconciled today or not, it's that we're not really sure about our own reconciliation with God. Because if we were, we'd receive with open arms everything that Paul says to Philemon in that book. The problem goes deeper. The problem is, as I've said a few times, we're in the ring but on the ropes. We haven't really allowed his love to permeate. We haven't allowed reconciliation to be the name of the game with, with us and God, let alone with us and each other. And until you do, you're gonna be in that stuck place. But here's the good news. You can reconcile with him. You can believe like you've never believed that he loves you 
and make it that pursuit for the rest of your life. When I made that decision back in the 90s, it didn't change overnight. It's taken me decades to get more in touch with his love each moment of each day, but it's my pursuit now. It's that which drives me the most. You can make that choice, and I'm gonna help you make it right now. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I am more convinced of what we talked about today than just about anything in my life. Well, more than anything in my life. Lord, there's a lot I don't know, but I do know this. Jesus came. Jesus died for our sins. He rose on the third day, proving who he was. He ascended into heaven. He's given us the spirit. And that now he's asked our lives to passionately pursue you, a thirst for God above all else, and your love found within our thirst for you. And Father, I pray that if there's anybody here or a Cactus Northridge Chapel online that agrees with that sentiment, that if there's something in their soul that passionately thirsts after you above all else and your love, that Lord, today here, we make a decision, a commitment to have your, the personal love that you have for us be that which is resident in our souls the most and drives us the most. There'll be days that we fail. There'll be days that other things get put into first place, but we're gonna catch that, God, and we're gonna believe and trust in you above all else. God, this could be watershed for the future of many of us as we allow what the Bible trumpets more than anything else, your love to be that which drives us the most. May that be true for us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.